Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Ben Christie joined me, Matt Tebby. Matt Christie. Hi, Ben and Christie. We are uh, presently, this is the intro to the yeah, trauma-informed so evangelism conversation we had. And it is, we're, uh, I'm, I have designs on an entire series about trauma-informed ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody really <laughs> should get on scheduling yeah. that. Yes. Probably should be me. Probably should be me. Uh, but speaking of scheduling things and stuff yes. that's important... Is uh, uh, yeah. a retreat. Yeah, we can uh, chat um, about it a little bit. We that? just sort of put the final, um, um, what do you call it? The final touches, I guess, on a, a retreat that um, Matt and I are going to lead here in Indianapolis, in beautiful Indianapolis, um, uh, at the end of August, August thirty first through mm-hmm. September second. We were thinking about we have we have some space uh, that's um, um, owned by some friends of ours called Fall Creek Abbey. And it is a lovely retreat space. And we thought, what would we want to do if we're going to lead a retreat, invite uh, some people out to um, be together and talk uh, about things that are, you know, things that matter. And so we decided to call it A Bright Sadness. And it's a retreat about making space for grief and joy. Um, And so the idea behind the retreat is uh, just the fact that uh, man, it's been uh, it's been a heck of a few years. Do you guys you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> for, yeah, just just for, for Matt, just for Matt. <laughs> for me, so this retreat is actually all of us are going to gather around Matt and just say, Matt, how have things been going for you for the past few years? Mm-hmm. No, just joking. That's not what it's going to be about. Um, but, yeah, all of us, but yeah, all of us, right? With a pandemic and the cultural upheaval of the last few years, um, there's a lot uh, that um, that a lot of us have not really had time to process. Um, our experiences and sort of we, we need to work through traumas. We need to work through uh, grief, um, tragedy, uh, but also uh, to pay attention to where there have been places of grace and gifts perhaps for us. So we, we're just designing two days of a retreat around two very simple questions. One, what do you need to grieve that you haven't given space for? Two, what do you need to celebrate that you haven't given space for? And so um, that's going to be it. It's not going to be super content heavy. It's going to be very conversation heavy. Um, I'm going to be cooking. So it's going to be home cooked meals um, over Mm. two days. Look, fam, if Mm -hmm. I can just put a plug in here for Ben's cooking. Yeah. Like even if we weren't grieving and laughing. Well, that's very uh, kind of you, Matt. You, would, but you need to come ben, just to taste Ben's you know, food. But I, and I love to serve food, so please come. Come out. Yeah, let us, let us know. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's really, really coming he's along. Really tasty. He's really getting um, better. Anyway, that's how the whole they, idea. How do they sign up for that, Ben? Oh, that's a great question, Christy. Man, you're, you're on it, practically speaking. Um, you can go to, there's going to be a link in the show notes to this episode, but you can also go to abrightsadness.eventbrite.com. And that'll take you right there to uh, the ticketing page. There are four rooms available at the actual retreat center. And so if you want to get one of those rooms and stay on site, um, you need to be, uh, I guess, first in line. (laughs) So um, we've already had one person register for this um, conference as of this recording and so um, for this retreat. And so there's going to only be 12 spaces uh, max uh, just to allow for us to have the kind of conversations that we want to have. And we're just going to linger over home-cooked meals, fire pits, um, all that kind of stuff. There's other places that you can stay close by, um, other places that'll put you up. But if you have any questions, just email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. And uh, yeah, we would look forward to, to seeing you. Check out all the info online. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. And if you can't come to the retreat, uh, I think, Chrissy, didn't I see you got Always. an email from yeah. somebody Always who's in the springs and you're going to meet up with them for so coffee I'll take or something? You coffee. If you're like not in Indiana, come to Colorado. <laughs> yeah. We can grieve and celebrate together in a coffee shop. Uh, I feel like you're competing with us now, Christy. No, no, sorry. That, so that sounded flippant because you can't really grieve and no, celebrate in it, a coffee shop. It was, but. A, it was a joke, but I do feel a little insecure that uh, you live in Colorado Springs and get to invite people to a beautiful location. And we live in Indianapolis, mm. which... Has mm. its beauties. It has its uh, beauties, but it's, um, it's beautiful. It's not as traditionally beautiful. Different as kind color. of beauty. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> anyway, um. yeah. Well, um, this conversation today mm-hmm. with uh, Charles Kaiser yeah. and Elaine Heath was uh, was awesome. The story about how they wrote the book together is great. Yeah, and I actually got a lump in my throat in this fantastic. conversation and tried to hide it. I think I did a good job. I don't think you're going to notice where. <laughs> but um, I then talked about this conversation because, you know, this, this is just me and my personality. When yeah. something hits me, I'm like, everybody's going to know. Mm-hmm. So then I talked about mm-hmm. this conversation um, for yeah. like every time I saw somebody that I hadn't seen in the last week. <laughs> so yeah. um, it's good. And um, it's it's worth yeah. getting the book. It's worth reading. And then it's worth processing this with somebody, I think. Yeah. It's it's important to, yeah, I think talk through some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. And I, I'm looking forward to you know, whenever you get these episodes scheduled uh, for this series on trauma informed uh, ministry slash life. Um, I am looking forward to it because I, I think like, I think what's emerging <laughs> for me at least is that understanding trauma is I think becoming one of the most significant paradigm shifts for me in terms of, like just navigating life and ministry. Um, yeah. It's maybe too early to call it, you know, like a big paradigm shift because sometimes you can only see these things clearly in the rearview mirror. Um, but I was just reflecting on how, for example, you know, 20, 25 years ago, um, reading Dallas Willard was a huge paradigm shift for me about like what what is the Christian life all about. And I think uh, understanding trauma is mm-hmm. becoming as significant as that. And so... I think it's going to be a really important thing for us to understand. So I'm looking forward to learning uh, and sharing that learning with our listeners over this series. So anyway, listener, look for more of this kind of stuff and enjoy this conversation with Charles and Elaine. Here we go. Here we go. Here it comes. Let's share this learning right now. (laughs) 
Dr. Elaine Heath and Charles Kaiser. Dr. Heath is the author of 11 books and numerous articles, including uh, the most recent book being Loving the Hell Out of Ourselves and Others, which she co-authored with her sister. She's formerly the Dean of Divinity School at Duke University, where she was also a professor of missional and pastoral theology. And she's an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church and has served in pastoral ministry prior to her academic ministry. She co-founded the Neighborhood Seminary, which our other guest, Charles Kaiser, serves as a faculty member on. Charles is a pastor and theologian with Storyline Christian Community in Dallas, Texas, which is a network of missional communities he helped to form. He has a demon in contextual theology from Northern Seminary, and he's got a really nice beard. Charles, Elaine, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. It's good to have you. Thank you. Thanks good to a be lot. Here. I dig your stash. <laughs> Thanks, man. Oh, we no. got to look out for each other, you oh, and I. No. Yeah. Yes. You yes, have yes, no yes. idea what you've done, Charles. Um, <laughs> no, idea. no idea. Charles, don't. Eyes on me, Charles. Eyes on me. We'll get through this. Locked in. Haters are going to hate. They're going to hate. Um, we're doing this series on being trauma-informed in ministry, and we're talking about a book that you co-authored together, Trauma-Informed Evangelism, Cultivating Communities of Wounded Healers. Uh, Charles, I think you tell the story in the book about how this book came to be, but I think it's um, unique and really cool the way that Elaine sort of uh, invited you to write a book with her. Could you just tell that story quickly? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was doing doctoral work, and um, as a part of my my doctoral work, I had been hanging out with some of my friends in a a neighborhood board gaming group for uh, for a few years at that point, and wanted to use my my uh, emerging ethnographic skills to kind of do some culture learning in that group. And uh, part of the listening surfaced these uh, uh, experiences of harm in in church and in religion among. Um, you know, most of my friends in this board gaming group are self-described atheists or agnostics, and uh, it it uh, it was so widespread just just in in a single question that I I wasn't even aiming to like uncover experiences of harm in religion that uh, it got my attention. It it surfaced the harms that I had experienced myself, it, it helped me to realize the degree to which lots of folks in my community of faith and storyline had experienced, um, religious harm and trauma themselves. And, uh, I just, uh, couldn't look away. I had to learn more. I, I didn't have language for it at the time, but what I uncovered in my friends and church folks was experiences of spiritual abuse and religious trauma. And so that that uh, focused my doctoral program and my doctoral thesis, and um, worked kind of at the intersection of uh, mission and and trauma and what does it mean? What does it look like to be uh, trauma informed, especially religious trauma informed in our relationships with folks? What does it mean to be a healing presence? Uh, and after the doctoral program was over, of course, it was in the midst of uh, this plague that all of us went through together, and I was doing some discernment, and I I still had a lot of life and energy in me about these stories and the things that I learned 
um, in this project. And I thought, oh, I want to, I think I want, I want to write a book. I hadn't considered that. And what else am I going to do? Um, when I have to sit in a closet or a cave, you know, most of the time anyway, I might as well, mm-hmm. um, put this together. And so, uh, I, I talked to Elaine and I said, uh, you know, Elaine, I, I'm learning about book writing that, um, I, I have two options, you know, I can, I can self-publish a book and maybe my mom and two other people will read it. <laughs> or I, I can like spend several years building a platform beyond the three people that are on it already to try to convince a publisher to take this project. And that sounds like that would make me a worse person. So like, yes. what advice do you have? And she said, well, there's a third option. And, uh, that, that would, uh, involve co-authoring with somebody who, um, already has connections and has already written books. And as a matter of fact, um, what if we wrote a book together? And I, I thought, play it cool, play it cool. Uh, uh, yeah, Elaine. Wow. I thank you for that. Let me pray about that and yeah, sit with it. I'll take it I under advisement. Got off the call and giggled <laughs> like a schoolboy. Mm-hmm. So and uh, so we worked together you, at that time. Did, after that, yeah, that's amazing. I'm just curious. At that time, did you say, "Let me hear back from Rick Warren first, or did you just go all in with Elaine? <laughs> Um, I mean, uh, there, there's another here. book. Oh, so, yeah. I, I, that yes. Was, that was the top of the heap for me. For sure. There's another book to be written about the, eth- the, 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 the virtue or ethics of only being able to write books if you can sell them. Hmm. Meaning, if you can market them through your... Yeah. And, and what kind of books we get because right. of that. Right. right? Exactly. Yep. Um, this may be the best case scenario of that. Yeah. <laughs> From, um. That's really that's really fantastic. Now, how did you and Elaine meet? Elaine, how did you meet Charles? Were you on his? Were you a reader for his dissertation? I was his advisor, and I had okay. met him previously. I had uh, resourced a gathering of church planters, and Charles was in that gathering, so he had heard me uh, expound upon my beliefs about missional ecclesiology and trauma informed ministry. Yeah. Yeah. Well. In in your introduction, Charles, as you were describing the ethnography that you were doing and the the stories you were hearing, uh, I'm curious, you used several terms to kind of describe the same general experience. Words like harm, words like abuse, words like um, trauma, words like hurt. Uh, And even in the book, you talk about moral injury. Mm -hmm. So it feels feels like as we are getting our arms around, what is this? We, um, we, I run into the need for like a new lexicon mm-hmm. to describe the diverse and complex experiences for what, what's happening to ourselves. So maybe uh, Charles and or Elaine, do you mean the same thing by these words or when you say things like spiritual abuse, spiritual trauma, moral injury, spiritual harm, or do you mean something slightly different? Uh, you know, some of the, there's a lot of overlap in those uh, in those terms, uh, uh, for sure, especially between harm and and terms like abuse and and trauma. I mean, those are abuse and trauma would be manifestations or uh, deeper definition to the nature of the harm. Um, but I I would distinguish between um, abuse and trauma um, in our work. You know, I. I um, follow the work of a clinical psychologist, Dr. Cindy Matthews, who defines spiritual abuse 
as any abuse or trauma that occurs in the name of religion or the deity of that religion. Um, and so it, it mm. highlights the degree that religion or God motivates the abuse that's experienced. And that leaves room for a lot of overlap between sexual, physical, verbal, emotional abuse and spiritual abuse, because they often happen together. Uh, Any time physical or sexual or emotional abuse happens in a religious context, it is simultaneously spiritual abuse. So abuse kind of focuses on the, um, uh, the acts of the perpetrator, the one who's causing harm, the power differential uh, uh, that creates the conditions for, for that kind of harm, that kind of abuse to occur. Uh, trauma focuses on the impact of the person who ex- experiences, the person who, who is victimized or harmed, um, and the way in particular that harm is carried in a person's body and brain. So in line with the kind of clinical definitions of trauma, uh, not not just the bad thing that happened to us, the the abuse that occurred, uh, but in particular the imprint or the way that that harm is carried in our bodies and brains, the way that it gets us stuck in the eternal present of traumatization, um, or you know fight or flight or freeze kinds of uh, responses. Um, so there is there is nuance in that range of language, harm probably being the most broad, and then abuse and trauma uh, highlighting uh, different different sides of the experience. And now, a word from a sponsor. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us towards holistic flourishing. More transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives, to learn how to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Elaine, I wonder as we press into, you have this uh, section uh, and you talk about there's five common themes Mm -hmm. that emerge that cause harm. Mm -hmm. And I'll just read them briefly and then I have a question about one of them. Um, Terminating relationship is one. Two is mistreating those at the margins. Three is exploiting pastoral authority. We've talked about that a lot here. Four is witnessing harm. And five is what you call differentiating experiences. And we've talked about most of these on this podcast, but I'm, I'd love to hear you expand more and say more about what are differentiating experiences and how do they, how do they contribute to harm or injury? Thank you. I think actually that would be better for Charles to answer that question because that was, a, that was some work that he did in the book. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
Um, I, all of us, I, myself included, I, I would love to listen to Elaine talk. So I'll be brief <laughs> so that we can get her, um, the next question. Um, uh, differentiating experiences kind of, it refers to, uh, what, what I discovered in my friends who experienced this religion, r- religious harm that, that, um, their, their ability or capacity uh, to differentiate between uh, either God and the context of the harmful, harmful experience that they uh, that they had, or to differentiate between uh, a an unhealthy or toxic expression of Christian community uh, or religion and and a healthy one. So, uh, what what I discovered is that. Uh, my friends who had experienced religious trauma and spiritual abuse, it often uh, collapsed or or devastated their ability to differentiate uh, between harmful and healthy expressions and between uh, God and the experiences that they had. So uh, essentially, the mm. the experience of harm it destroyed their ability to see anything other than the harmful experience that they had. Um, and, and rather than blame them for that, I would say that's the impact of the trauma and abuse that they experienced that to varying degrees, my friends were, um, were able to say, you know, this is, um, this might be one instance of harm, but, uh, but that mean that doesn't mean that other, uh, contexts might not be healthy or helpful, or that this, this doesn't necessarily mean that, that, uh, God is authoring this for a lot of my friends. They were unable to tell the difference. They, it it got collapsed all into the same pile of this is really terrible and rotten at the core. So let me, uh, Charles, and you gave me permission to call you Chuckles at the beginning of the, of the interview. This may be a good chance for me to use that. Uh, that was, I knew, that was I before, knew. listener, that was before we hit record, but um, it did, did indeed, yeah. indeed happen. So. so, Chuckles, what you're saying is uh, someone experiences like a really loud uh, bang and their ears are ringing. Mm. And, then, um, and then that actually traumatizes, I'm using a metaphor here, traumatizes the eardrum, but then any sound creates ringing in the ears Mm -hmm. and they're unable to differentiate between a sound that is good and that they, that that doesn't hurt their ears and that is harmful and is injuring their ear because of the continual ringing. Is that, is that what you're describing? Yep. That's right. And it it brings to mind stories of friends who, I mean, they had friends who died by suicide because of abuse they had experienced in the church or they experienced this deep, religious harm and abuse and trauma themselves. And their conclusion was, I never want to have anything to do with this again. Uh, Because if this is what religion is all about and God is all about, I'm out. And, and I, to preserve my own sense of safety and well being, I need to be done with this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's, uh, that's really helpful. Um, Elaine, I wonder um, if you could answer this question. Um, not that we don't want to hear more from Chuckles. Um, anyway, <laughs> hope, hope that's okay. We can joke around a little bit. Um, in the book, you talk a little bit about the dangers of supremacy cultures, and you name Christian supremacy as one of them. 
Um, and I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about that because I, I think that sometimes when people hear that term, um, it, it might be like, they might not know the difference between what Christian supremacy is and just like a healthy conviction that Christianity is true, right? So you might believe that, that the, the doctrines of Christianity are true mm-hmm. and that might be fine, but that's something different than what you're calling Christian supremacy. Um, and so can you explain a little bit of the difference between you know, those two things like Christian supremacy and also just this sense of, I have a conviction that these doctrines are true. That, well, that would actually lead me to do something called evangelism, right? Like I'd actually proclaim <laughs> the good news to somebody because I believe it to be true and helpful. Um, but what's the difference between that and Christian supremacy? Christian supremacy would be something that Jörg Rieger calls you know, empire, the church functioning like an empire. Like it has the right to show up and boss everybody around, tell them they're wrong and Christianity is right. They're going to go to hell and burn forever if they don't love Jesus. And, oh, by the way, we want your money and your land. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you put it that way. (laughs) Sign me up. It sounds uh, so compelling when you put it like that. I want to worship a sociopath. How about you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, let's do that. (laughs) Yeah, so, and some of the milder expressions of this are things like, uh, uh, it's common in the church with when you're doing a stewardship campaign to refer to people as giving units instead of human beings. So the, the church is riddled with this exploitive, predatory um, posturing when it comes to evangelism and mission, which is, it's a travesty. It's, it's in my view, it's, it's blasphemous because it does not regard our neighbors as people who are sacred, made in the image of God, already beloved to God. God's already walking with them. I mean, it's, it's not taking any of that seriously. And it's from a bad interpretation of scripture uh, combined with patriarchy and a few other things. But just one scripture that can help us think about this in Matthew 28, you know, the Great Commission or the Great Expectation, whatever you want to call it. The, there's a, uh, the word go in Greek is in an aorist tense. We don't have an aorist tense in English that's exactly the same. So the verb tense means go and as you're going. So it's a continuous action. While you're going about your business, make disciples. And uh, even the word disciple. So we, we've, we've changed that in, instead of, you know, while you're living your life, live in such a way that people around you become curious and also want to follow Jesus. We've turned it into a sales campaign or a military campaign, which is, is so different than what Jesus actually shows up and does in the world when we read the Gospels. So uh, I hope I'm beginning to answer your question as yeah. to what... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, living the way Jesus is actually uh, urging us to do, telling us to do in Matthew yeah. 28, is living a lifestyle in community that's so compelling and beautiful, that's so mm-hmm. self-giving, that's so much for the sake of its neighbors, that people are curious and find healing and feel welcome and um, come closer, and we all get closer to God at the same time. Yeah. I yeah. think... Going with the scripture, you know, as you just ma- mentioned, Matthew 28, could you have an eye-opening chapter on Jesus as the trauma survivor? Um, can you talk just for a few minutes about what differences does it make to you, to us, that Jesus experienced and survived trauma? Well, let me take a stab at that first, and then, uh, Charles, maybe you'll have a few things to say. So, 
I really believe in a therapeutic doctrine of atonement, <laughs> that I really believe that Jesus' coming and being God-made flesh is God's deep solidarity with us, God expressing what kind of God God is. As we watch how Jesus shows up in the Gospels, how Jesus lives his life, and then how he experiences an unjust and brutal murder at the city dump. And then, of course, we have uh, the resurrection and so on. But in, in his experiences as a human being, the whole story of his incarnation is filled with suffering, the kind of suffering people experience today, especially marginalized people. You know, he's born uh, under Roman-occupied Palestine. He's part of a minority group that's despised by a lot of people. He's, his family's poor. His mother was pregnant before she was married. We've got all those things. He ends up as a refugee when he's a toddler. And then as an adult, he, it seems he was homeless at times. He said he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. Even the foxes and birds have somewhere to sleep at night. So Jesus has all these experiences of suffering uh, in solidarity with all the, all the human suffering in the world. And then in his experience of being unjustly arrested, tortured to death, he experiences every kind of dimension of abuse that you can think of, including sexual abuse. When Jesus is publicly stripped and hung on this cross for people to stare at and mock and, uh, you know, all of the things that he went through, we find resonance with the experience of people who've been abused. So we find a Savior who really, really knows and really is with us in our suffering. But the suffering doesn't have the last word for Jesus. Love wins out in the end. Jesus rises from the dead, and in his rising, he lifts us up as well. Beautifully said. Charles, do you have anything you want to add to that? I'm not sure anything would make that better. Yeah. Uh, 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 so the, the, with that as my caveat, <laughs> I'll say I'll say the reading reading this story um, with books like James Cone's Cross and the Lynching Tree in mind uh, led me to imagine ways that how, how does Jesus come into solidarity with survivors of spiritual abuse and religious trauma um, and it opened my eyes to the degree that um, that Jesus also spirit, uh, experiences spiritual abuse as part of his crucifixion um, experience, that, that to the degree that his suffering was motivated by a particular understanding of God and religion and the, the, um, the religious powers that be, uh, he, he, um, he experiences spiritual abuse that's laced through all of those experiences of uh, verbal and physical and sexual abuse that he experiences on the cross, which I think only only deepens the degree to which, at least it's my hope. And and as a as a person who survived some religious trauma myself, to to be seen in that by Jesus, to be witnessed in that by Jesus as one who has embodied solidarity with that. Jesus knows what that's like. Um, uh, it's to the um, it's to the same theme and idea that Elaine was saying about uh, Jesus's solidarity with those who suffer abuse and trauma in the cross. 
I'm really thankful that this, that you talked about this, but also that this chapter is in the book. Because even in talking about it, there's a lump in my throat. There's something, um, I think our listeners, along with myself, we need to be reminded that we are not alone, that we have, that Jesus understands, participated, and and gets it. And there's something really tender about that for people who have gone through spiritual abuse and, and had trauma like that in their, in their life. So thank you for that. One more thing that this inspires for me, if that's okay. Uh, uh, earlier we were talking about definitions of trauma and um, one of my favorite definitions of trauma is by uh, Gabor Mate, who's a, an MD and he says that trauma isn't what happens to us. It's what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. And so trauma is the, this, this disconnection, a sense of overwhelm and, um, and helplessness in the face of some threat to our existence and well-being. Uh, and, and so the healing of trauma then occurs through the presence of an empathetic witness. And and what if Jesus in his crucifixion is that empathetic witness to our pain and to the pain of our neighbors? And that that part of the healing that we receive in in the cross of Jesus is, is seeing Jesus empathetically witness our pain and abuse and trauma, that there's there's something about the healing of our trauma that occurs even in that experience of solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so compelling, uh, Charles. I think, <clears throat> especially, you know, considering the, the doctrine of the church, right, that we're the, the body of Christ. And so our, and maybe this can help us pivot into the evangelism part of this book, right? Um, so what does all this have to do with evangelism? But I think you've, you've sort of, at least uh, previewed it there for us in that if Christ on the cross is the ultimate empathetic witness, then we as the body of Christ, like part of our task can simply be to bear witness to other people's traumas and to validate those yeah. things and to say, I, I see you and I hear you and, you know, God suffers with you. And we, we know that because of the cross, because of the gospel. Um, so anyway, I just got excited and wanted to say that. Um, the, <laughs> no question in that. Um, but, uh, but maybe we can turn uh, to this question of, you know, what this all has to do with evangelism. The book is about trauma-informed evangelism. Um, and there's a lot, you know, that we could say about this. Um, but I, I wonder if we could talk about something you guys talk about, which is um, flipped hospitality. I wonder if you could say more about how being trauma-informed changes the way that we practice hospitality. Elaine, you want to take that one? Yeah, I'll, right. I'll get started on it. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, most of us who were in the church in the last 40 or 50 years were taught that um, it's the church's job to be the host and everybody else's job to be the guest. And even the sense of evangelism was very much shaped by, we need to go out and get the people in our neighborhood and bring them to the church so they can find salvation. You know, it's about bringing them to the church. And it was part of that sort of empire thinking, like we have God, they don't, and they have to come to our building and hear our preacher and, you know, whatever. 
Um, but flipped hospitality is actually much more scriptural. You know, in, in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 70 or 72, depending on which ancient manuscript you read, <laughs> sends them out, uh, and, and they're the guests. And he sends them out and says, okay, now go out and go two by two, and don't take any extra stuff with you. I want you to be radically vulnerable. And you need to behave yourselves in such a way that you're not a nuisance so that somebody will invite you into their home. Once they do, don't be wandering around. You stay there and <laughs> let them know that the kingdom of God has come. And that's a very different posture with which to inhabit the world, to see ourselves as uh, guests instead of hosts. It, it means we re really respect our neighborhoods. We respect the people around us. We respect the cultures. We um, don't act behave as a nuisance, you know, kind of. Um, and, and it's also, um, it takes, it changes the power differential, as Charles yes. says. It changes it quite a bit. What do you want to add to that, Charles? Oh, that's just where my head was, was the, I think part of, part of what we need to name is the power difference, uh, at least initially, between host and guest. That to the extent that you're hosting, you set the parameters, you, you, you host the culture that a guest enters into, and the role of the guest on some level is to adjust and adapt and, and um, to, to be a good guest is to, uh, to come in sync with the house rules, as it were. And, um, and, and the, uh, the guest on some level is, is at the mercy of the good graces or not of the, the host in that space. The host has the power advantage, in other words. And I, I suppose what we're, what we're proposing, especially in the context where the church has had the host uh, power and has abused that power, and folks within that context have abused that power to harm folks, uh, we're, we're suggesting that we flip the tables, we flip hospitality, and the, the church enters into its neighborhood uh, as the guest, vulnerable uh, to to come into the uh, the culture and environment and the house rules of another person's house, and and uh, to be a good guest in that space, to build rapport, um, to to be there to be a friend and a neighbor, and and to progress as the host would give them grace to to progress. And as as Elaine said, I mean, this is not new. This is the way of Jesus. This is how a lot of missionary movements, including Patrick in Ireland, all of them are, are wired with these impulses to, um, to be the guest first. And I, in a context of spiritual harm, in a context where that host role has been abused, I think that's where we have to start. We have to, uh, it, it's part of what it means to practice kenosis. We empty ourselves of the need to host um, and we take on the role of a guest. We'll be right back. Let's get back to the show. You know, as you're talking, Elaine and Charles, I'm reminded of what we said earlier about Christian supremacy. And, and maybe it's a good, like, litmus test of, like, to what degree can you be a guest? With, with <laughs> to what degree can you show up and uh, comport yourself to somebody else's preferences, norms, folkways, habits? Uh, or do you have to be in charge of the so social architecture? It, you know, do you have to call the shots? 
And I think um, I think this came into supreme relief for me. And I'm wondering if you have a story about uh, from your from your life. But this came into supreme relief for me when I realized after seminary I had mastered divinity. Thank you very much. Holy applause. And uh, and it was such a pretentious title for uh, training ministers. I think. Um, and I realized that I could not be around uh, non-Christians, people not like me, sinners, without being offended by them. And I realized I can't love people I'm offended by. Like I just can't, I couldn't do it. I don't know how that grace came to me, but I realized I have no idea how to be like with people who don't do things the way I want them. And that kind of set me on this journey of like learning, well, why not? Because that sounds like a craptastic way to live, you know, if you're going to be a Christian. Um, but I'm curious, what are your experiences with being guests in places where you don't get what you want all the time and other people have the power? Oh, I can give you an example from two weeks ago. <laughs> two weeks ago. So I, I, I live in intentional community on a farm with friends and uh, we do, we have a farming ministry. We have food ministries, and we also have ministries with refugees. And I've become friends, really close friends, with a woman named Shema, who is our translator for Afghani people who come to our ESL program and the families who come to our Young Family Nutrition and Wellness program. And um, so Ramadan was going on, and uh, Shema invited me to go to Iftar with her. So I did. I went to uh, mosque with her. Um, I, I, she helped me get my scarf on my head and everything, and I wore the appropriate clothes so that I would fit in with the modesty expectations of that community. And I went with her and had a beautiful time. Uh, some of the uh, prayers were in English, but many of the things were done in Arabic, so I didn't understand always what was happening. But as I sat there and saw the families and kind of went through the evening and shared the meal when they broke bread, it felt very much like a church service. <laughs> I wasn't in charge. Nobody knew that I'm a theologian and was the dean. They didn't know. I was just that woman sitting by Shema, you know, and it, it felt wonderful, actually. Yeah. Hmm. 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 I'm noticing, Elaine, from what you said there, that um, if, if there's a need to be recognized or have status or to have some kind of communally conferred authority, then being a guest is going to be really hard for us. Yes, indeed. Um, a lot could be said. I mean, I think about the, well, Charles mentioned kenosis, and we write about that in our book. That comes from Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus emptied himself. That's what that word means, to give yourself away. And we're called to be of the same mind and the same practices as, as Jesus who gives himself away. But I think about... Um, some of the work of Thomas Merton and even Richard Rohr talking about true self and false self and dying to the false self. Um, the book Breathing Underwater, for example, is a 12-step spirituality in the Gospels, and it's, it's wonderful. That book in particular is wonderful in exploring this whole topic of uh, the ego not getting to rule the yeah. roost anymore. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, Richard Rohr, right? Breathing Underwater, yeah. is that his book? Yeah. Well, um, maybe as we turn towards close, just a few more questions. I, I'm noticing in our own church, Ben and I co-pastor a church together. Christy's also a pastor in a local church. And what happens even in the church when you 
become aware of your trauma. Notice how it shows up in your body. Go to the source of it. Uh, You know, when you talked about earlier not having an empathetic witness, um, I immediately flashed back to my parents getting a divorce when I was a kid, and it was like the ending of my life. Um, Andrew Root wrote a book called Children of Divorce, and in it he describes the reason why it was so hard for him to um, be a child of divorce was because his parents quit on their relationship before he did. And I just thought it was such a wonderful one-sentence phrase of like, this thing that you don't have any power over can be taken from you without your consent, and it feels like you're losing the ontology of your being. Um, And so with my parents with the divorce, they were saying, no, this is better. Things are going to be better now. It's going to be great. And I was saying, no, this hurts and this sucks. And so I internalized that as kind of gaslighting, you know, like you're not seeing my pain. And 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 really the, the, the divorce itself, uh, and this is true about trauma, it doesn't have to be the worst thing that ever happened to you. It just has to be how does your body experience it, right? So you throw a bunch of Matt Tebbies into a church and we've all got trauma. And some of us can name it, and some of us can't. Um, we all have complex stories. So my, my question then is, like, if we're going to be trauma-informed, not only in, a, in evangelism, but in just, like, everyday life in the church, what are some, what's some wisdom you can offer us or, or counsel about how to stay connected to, hurting, to harmed, hurting, traumatized people so that, so that not every conflict or disagreement isn't World War III and we just keep dividing and accusing each other, right, of being um, harmful narcissists, for instance. What, what are some practices that we can appropriate to help us navigate that? I mean, just hearing you kind of describe that situation um, just reminds me of how uh, how tricky it is and how difficult, how messy um, relationships and community is among traumatized people. And uh, to the degree that trauma is activated um, by who knows what, and, um, and it, it may or may not be about the person across from me, you know. Um, I, one, one thing that comes to mind that comes out in our book uh, is um, comes from uh, Judith Herman, who uh, wrote a seminal book almost 30 years ago about trauma. She was one of the first to bring trauma out of wartime and soldier experiences and into everyday experiences, exploring complex PTSD and all of that. Um, and she talks about how the first and fundamental stage of recovery and healing is the development of safety in a relationship. And um, no, nothing can shortcut or bypass or go around a sense of, uh, of safety. And she's speaking about a therapeutic relationship, but I, I think that's just good general relationship advice or pastoral uh, advice on some level is that, that part of how we navigate it is just with some tenacity in relationships. We, we hang on and hang in with people when the waters get choppy and rough. Um, and a part of being safe is being non-defensive. Um, it is, it's navigating our own, uh, 
trauma responses or countertransference or what, whatever dynamics that those hard responses kind of bubble up in us. It's doing the interior work to, uh, to process that in ways that it doesn't come out sideways and inadvertently harm our friends that we're in community with. Um, another thought that comes to mind too, is just, I, it, it's occurred to me a lot in conversations about this, that, um, listening, uh, I can't imagine many scenarios where listening would be a source of harm. Uh, and the idea of that when I, when I have a, uh, it, this is channeling Parker Palmer, who says, when you're, when you feel judgmental. Um, use that as a cue to become curious. Turn your judgment into wonder. And so, so if I have judgment, kind of what's going on? What are you? What what's happening right now? What's bubbling up? Uh, I I can get curious about it. I can ask about it. I can listen. Um, I can give space for things to settle and check in again. Uh, that's some of what I mean. That's the very beginnings of how we we maintain relationships among traumatized yeah. folks. Yeah. What strikes me about that answer, and I'd love to hear Elaine, if you have anything uh, further to add uh, that comes to mind, but what strikes me about your answer, Charles, is that for us to become trauma informed, I think sometimes we think about it as like, okay, I need to be aware of other people's trauma so I can, you know, be a better proclaimer of good news or, you know, whatever, but you cannot actually become informed about trauma in other people without also simultaneously becoming aware of your own trauma. And for me to be able to deal well with others' trauma is the same thing as me realizing, oh, <laughs> you know, part of the reason I, I have trouble with these kinds of conversations is I'm something in me is getting triggered. And I have to be aware of what's happening in me for me to actually be an empathetic uh, listening presence for you. Um, that we, you can't have one without the other, really. So thank you for that. Yes. Elaine, anything to add? And yeah. I would, yeah, I would add that I, uh, anytime I've had a pastoral role or even as a professor, I made sure that I, I, could, I had several names of therapists who were really good in somatic healing of trauma, specialized in the healing of sexual abuse, things like that, so that I could refer people when, when the need arose in the, in the context of a pastoral care conversation or conversations so that I could refer people. And um, also I would tell people, yeah, I've had therapy too. It's so helpful. You know, I try to speak openly and affirming about therapy because there's still, with some people, there's still a stigma, you know, about going to see a therapist. And then um, on our leadership team here at Spring Forest, we, uh, we work to have everyone trauma informed so that we understand what trigger means we have some rudimentary understanding of how the body holds trauma and the fight, flight, freeze, and fawn uh, reactions of the amygdala and all those things so that people um, are just more aware and sensitive. Yeah. That's really yeah. good. Well, I know time is coming to a close, but I'm wondering if I can ask one more question. And it's actually something that's not covered in the book. Um I think many people who will read this um, are going to be have had some training maybe um, of evangelism strategies like bridges and laws and whatnot. How would you share the gospel to someone in a trauma-informed way? I guess maybe it's the Enneagram 3 just wants to know how to do it. 
Well, for, I can answer for myself, and maybe Charles will have another perspective, but I try to approach my relationships with people with the heart and eyes of a spiritual director. And so I, I assume God is with the other person. I assume God loves them. I assume God's been with them their whole life. And I don't, I don't assume I have God and they don't. And so in the course of friendship, when, um, when it comes up about God or God experiences or spirituality, my, my default is to um, try to help people notice how God's already been with them and loves them already just as they are, uh, just kind of noticing the markers with them, you know, so that there's not an us and them. There's only an us. I always assume there's just an us. And we're all moving closer to God at, you know, different speeds through different experiences. So that's how I approach it. Hmm. Charles, are you the same? Uh, Charles, we need to meet in a moment. I think he just, uh, Elaine just proclaimed the gospel to him and he may have just got saved. <laughs> that's right. Hallelujah. <laughs> For sure. Sorry, Charles, go ahead. Uh yeah, I, I mean, I would say it's more it, it's more ad hoc for me than it, it has ever been. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it comes, um, as Elaine was saying, as we go on the way. And I, one of my friends talks about thinking about evangelism as a mosaic, that, that at the center of this mosaic, with all of these different pieces that together create this broader picture of the good news, at the center of which is the life of, and person and death and resurrection of Jesus, um, that that any any aspect of our lives is a uh, a potential entree into conversation about mm-hmm. how God sees us and loves us and um, is for us. And so, in uh, I think my approach is just to to speak good news is to show up at, and I'm channeling Elaine now. Uh, Elaine talks about this contemplative contemplative stance, uh, which is part of her being a spiritual director in the lives of people, and it's fourfold. It is it's to show up to ourselves, to God, to others, to our neighbors, to pay attention, um, and then as we see God at work, to collaborate, to join in, to participate, and then um, Enneagram threes. This is helpful for us. Release the outcomes. Um, so we show up and pay attention. That's the ad hoc part. As we pay attention, we have entrees to talk about good news and talk about the goodness of God as God is at work in our relationships. And, and we release the outcomes of those conversations to the agency of God and especially to the agency of our neighbors. Because um, evangelism goes bad when we try to trample over the agency of our neighbors with conquest and and uh, forceful persuasion or whatever. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I don't know if I like all this because I can't control that evangelism. <laughs> strategy to now, and that's the only reason yeah. I'm a pastor. Matt, are, Matt, are you a one on the Enneagram? I'm just wondering. <laughs> oh, thank you. I do integrate into a one. So I appreciate Elaine, you seeing the maturity that I'm. Matt, Matt you've been appreciated mm, twice. Yes. Once for your mustache, no. once for your maturity. This is. <laughs> Oh, we guys. should end right there. You Thank have you no so idea much, <laughs> the work that you've given Christy and I. So, no. 
<laughs> uh, it's okay. I'm a great sanctifying agent uh, for in Christie and Ben's life. Uh, Elaine and Charles, it's a delight to be with you. I, there are so many parts of this book we didn't get to, the contemplative aspects of the life here, the book. Elaine, your uh, reflection on the embodied, beautiful community, uh, the belonging community, uh, calling on uh, Parker Palmer in the epilogue. There's so many... Um, wonderfully deep. I think every chapter in this book could be a book. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you read a book and you're like, this could have been a blog post, bro. Uh, but this book, it's like, I really wanted in each chapter, I wanted, I wanted more and more and more because it's so rich. So, uh, thank you for this. Um, before we go, uh, where can people find you or interact with you? Maybe access other things you're working on or doing, uh, Charles, let's start with you. The, the gateway to all the things is charleskaiser.com, K-I-S-E-R.com. And that connects to my social media and to my nascent um, Substack because everybody's doing Substack now. I, I have to yes, we are. jump on that. Um, so, yeah, that's the easiest way to connect to me. Great. And, Elaine, I mentioned uh, the book, Loving the Hell Out of People. Uh, by the way, I've, I'm going to Google that as soon as we're done okay. because uh, – I really like the title. Um, obviously, are you are writing anywhere or present anywhere online, or are, are your books the best place to interact with you? I have a website, elaineaheath.org, and all my books are, there's a page with books. I have a vlog that comes out a couple times a month, just a little short meditation coming from Spring Forest, and there's a contact email there if people want to get in touch with me for some reason. And uh, loving the hell out of ourselves, There's uh, the subtitle is a memoir, and that's a book my sister and I wrote. We grew up in a violent family. We were also experienced violence from the church, and this is our healing journey. She's a therapist. I'm a theologian. We're both healers in our vocation. So it's an incredible story of, of uh, resurrection and redemption and forgiveness. Oh, man. I'm going on vacation next week, and guess what? <laughs> Amazon.com, here I come. <laughs> All righty. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Oh, that sounds wonderful. The title again of the book is Trauma-Informed Evangelism, Cultivating Communities of Wounded Healers. Elaine and Charles, thanks for being with us today. It's been great. Thank, Thank you. Charles talked about looking at Jesus on the cross as somebody who's an empathetic witness to our own trauma. Mm -hmm. And I was reminded about the conversation that we were having at the beginning about people who, ha who have differentiating experiences that are part of their right. trauma. And so it's like, for some people, they can't look upon Jesus because the Jesus they looked upon caused them trauma because it was toxic theology. And now the healing is to somehow look upon this empathetic witness. And I thought, man, I really want to tease out like how to hold, how to walk with someone through that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 yeah this, <clears throat> yeah. It, you know, like, like Charles said at the end, I think it's probably, um, at, what do you call it? Ad hoc. You call it ad yes. hoc, which is yes. like, that's a great word because I, I actually don't want to, I don't know what it means in Latin. But it, you know, it refers to just doing it on the fly or doing it, you know, sort of, um, you can't plan for things that are ad hoc. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wonder about that as well, because I think my, my naive response before I was trauma-informed or before I be started becoming trauma-informed, I think my naive response to people who had church hurt mm -hmm. was just to sort of like be like, well, well, that's not the real Jesus. 
Like, look here at the real Jesus. Yeah, let, not me argue. Really, let me argue with your trauma. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, that wasn't Jesus that did that to you. It was, it was uh, you know, church leaders, and it was a distorted image of Jesus. And um, Which, you know, t- technically, definitionally, probably, yeah. But I just, I didn't realize how unhelpful it was for people because of the way that trauma works. It's not, it's not lodged in your prefrontal cortex where you can just make a new decision. You know, it's lodged in our bodies and it, it has to be, I don't know. I, I think that's really, it's a really good question. It's really mm-hmm. um, tricky. You know, actually just talking about it being lodged in our bodies, just last week I had a situation where I was experiencing something and in my body, I was feeling it. I didn't actually have our, I couldn't, I didn't have words for what was going on or how I was reacting, but it was familiar. Like I was like, wait a minute, my body is responding in a way. And I I got to my car and I thought, okay, this is actually growth. Like Mm. I'm taking some deep Mm. breaths and I'm, I'm, I'm learning, I'm noticing, I'm becoming aware so that I can actually like navigate through it. And that was really hopeful to me. Um, and I was yeah, really thankful for the growth that I've seen. Yeah. You know, one thing that occurs to me <clears throat> just about your question, Matt, is I wonder, like my, my instinct is to, you know, uh, and, and following on from what you're saying, Christy, about just noticing things in your body, like my instinct was to sort of take it into the realm of theology, into the abstract, into ideas. Um, but I wonder if the way if somebody hmm. cannot look upon Jesus or something that is named Jesus, right? I wonder if we can just be Jesus without being named as Jesus for people in those kinds of situations where you, if what they need is just an empathetic witness and you know I can what? just be that, you know? You know what, Ben? That's good. You probably don't know it because it's only in my head, but I'm going to speak it. So mm. I was thinking that same <laughs> probably thing. don't know it. I was thinking that same thing um, when Paul says in the book of Colossians, I'm storing up in my body what's lacking in the cross of Christ for you. I mean, there's a whole podcast we could do about how our Protestant theology doesn't really know what to do with that. that, But he's talking about suffering. But, But I thought of that verse when they were speaking because I thought this, that applies here too. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That, That the cross of Christ is so far from you because of your trauma but I will empathetically bear witness to your pain and bear witness to that in my body, in my presence, because right now the cross of Christ isn't close enough to you, but my body is. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think we need to breathe that in. Yeah. Like we need to be that for each other and allow the other person to like breathe that in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, there's so much we could say about it. We should maybe include this as part of the uh, series. Cause I think sometimes we're afraid that that's not enough. Right. Well, unless, unless I told them about Jesus, is that, is it, is it enough? But I think it is enough if we trust that it actually is doing something powerful for somebody. Right. If we actually trust the gospel, <laughs> then it probably is enough. Yeah. For now. You know what I mean? That's enough for now. Yeah. So, <sighs> Good stuff. Yeah. Well, good. friends. Well, you got to go, Christy. I yep. do. All right. But Our listeners have to go too. They told me. I want to yeah, get your like opinion him. on something. I feel like everybody, I, I said something yesterday to my kids or to my wife and kids about that's Murphy's Law. Do you guys know what Murphy's yeah, yeah. Law is? Right. 
Murphy's okay. Murphy's law is if something uh, can go wrong, it will go wrong. It will go wrong. Yeah. Uh, but then I mentioned Cole's law. Do you guys know what Cole's law is? Cole's law. Yeah, like Murphy's law, mm-hmm. but it's Cole's. I think I see where this is Something going, but I'm not going like to ruin the joke. Slaw. Yes, hey, thinly sliced cabbage and mayo. But my, <laughs> I got it this time. I got it this time. <laughs> All right, Christy. Oh, you guys. All right, listener. We love you. Cole's mm-hmm. long. Peace out. All right. Mm-hmm. Peace, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful or enjoyable, we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And you can join our Gravity community online for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as our email most Fridays with curated links to articles we find interesting and helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our podcast is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the show. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.